we turn in our Bibles to Matthew 5, a chapter that is included in the Sermon on the Mount. And beginning at, re- at verse 14, we'll read through the end of the chapter. So Matthew 5, beginning at verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great. In the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, 
for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read this in connection with an introduction to the law as found in Lord's Day 34. In Lord's Day 34, we have question and answers 92 and 93, which pertain to the introduction of the law, and then 94 and 95, which get into the first commandment. This morning, we're not going to get into the first commandment, but we're going to look at an introduction to the law. We already have read this morning the answer to question 92, what is the law of God? We go to question 93. How are these commandments divided into two tables? The first of which teaches us how we must behave toward God. The second what duties we owe to our neighbor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, good works, which was the subject of Lord's Day 33, are those which proceed from true faith, according to question answer 91, are performed according to the law of God and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Those works of the Christian are good works, because they are performed in and through Christ. They are good works because they are in accordance with God's commandments. And the only possibility of those good works is the wonder of faith, that God has joined us to Christ, and that God is the one who has before ordained those works not only, but who now by His Spirit works them in our hearts. The measure, the standard, which determines whether those works are good is God's commandments, the law. And that now brings us into a treatment of the law here in the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the section that pertains to our thankfulness. The important question that we ask is not, what do I think would be good? What do I think would be a work that would be pleasing to God? But rather, what does God think? What does God say is a work that's pleasing in His sight? And everything that's not in conformity to his law is to be rejected. 
The catechism turns our attention then to God's law. And it first drew our attention to the law, if you recall, under the first section of the catechism, revealing our misery. There we briefly, in Lord's Day 2, addressed the place of the law in revealing our sin. Now the catechism again takes up the subject of the law, and this time in, the connection, in connection now with our gratitude. How is it that we live lives that are filled with works that are pleasing to God? We do so by walking and living in accordance with the law. It's for this reason that the Reformed churches have always deemed it as their practice to call attention to the people of God, to read the law, to read it not only in worship, but also to preach and to teach it, as we propose to do now in the next weeks. We need to see the law as a delight. We need to see the law as a law of liberty. And so before we get into a detailed treatment of each of the individual commandments, we look this morning at the law of God as a whole and the place of the law in the child of God's life. We look at it as God's perfect law, noting, first of all, the Christian and the law. Secondly, the completeness of the law. And finally, the spiritual significance of the law. Now, beloved, it's important from the beginning to understand what the significance of the law is for the child of God and to start with what it is not. The law in the life of the child of God does not serve as the means to be saved. We're not saved because of our good works. We're not saved because of our keeping of the law of God. We are saved by grace alone through Jesus Christ alone. And the reason why it's impossible for a man or a woman to be saved by the law is simply our total depravity. We, by nature, are depraved. All men are totally depraved and dead in trespasses and sins. There is no possibility of a dead man doing anything that's pleasing in God's eyes. If that man is going to be saved, he can't save himself. He's dead. God must work a wonder and God must implant his life in that person. The only possibility of a man or a woman doing good works is that God would first regenerate that one. And so we understand salvation by works denies not only total depravity, The one who is unregenerated, who is dead in sin, is dead. That one cannot do anything pleasing in God's eyes. But you say, what about the one who is regenerated? What if God would regenerate one, but then God would use then their good works as part of the basis of their salvation? We understand that even after regeneration, that sinful nature yet cleaves to us. We don't get rid of it until we die. And as a result then, there's no possibility that our works can earn anything in God's eyes. First of all, they're God's works. God is the one performing them in and through us. But secondly, our best works yet are tainted by sin because of that sinful nature. And therefore, the converted sinner is still a sinner after his conversion. He can't do anything that his salvation could be based upon his good works are of divine origin god working in and through him to perform his good pleasure another reason why it's impossible to be saved by the law 
is that our salvation is complete in Jesus Christ. That which Jesus performed is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. And so there's nothing more that needs to be added to it. There's nothing more that we could add to the wonder of what Christ did for us by our works or our obedience to God's commandments. Salvation by the law is also impossible because we understand the obedience and the, that God requires of us is perfect. No sinner, converted or unconverted, can render perfect obedience before God. Even if a man could, he would still be an unprofitable servant because he would merely do what was expected of him. So that there is no possibility that man can be saved by the law. Finally, we could add this. Salvation by the law is impossible because the Bible makes clear salvation is God's work from beginning to end. The chain of salvation begins with God, it ends with God. In Romans 8, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So that in that glorious chain of salvation, there's no place for the works of men. Our salvation is not dependent on man. It's all God's work. It's God's work from the wonder of predestination, election, all the way to God's wonder by which he glorifies himself in and through us so that all boasting is excluded. If salvation were by the deeds of the law, then God's grace would be frustrated. God would not be God. Salvation by the law, beloved, is impossible. The law was not given to man to serve as the basis or foundation of his salvation. What is the place of the law then in the life of the child of God? If it will not save a man, is there any use to it? Some people argue that way. If the law is not the basis of our salvation, then throw it away. That would be like saying, here's a piece of iron. But if you can't eat a piece of iron, it's worthless. It has no value. If food can't clothe me, then get rid of food. No, God has ordained that everything that God has made is good and God has an individual place for the various things that he has made. So that everything is useful in its own place and for its divinely appointed purpose. Faith justifies the soul before God. Good works justify or demonstrate that faith as the book of James teaches. So that our works which God is performing in and through us give evidence of the fact that we have faith. That faith being the bond that God has established between us and himself in Jesus Christ and good works now the fruit that causes God's children as trees now to bring forth abundant works. So what are some of the uses then of the law that we would understand? First of all, the law reveals to us this important truth. Jehovah, he is God. The law reveals to us God is sovereign. His supreme and everlasting dominion over us is asserted in the introduction to the law. We read, I am the Lord, Jehovah thy God. That's God asserting the fact that who is Lord? It's not you. 
You're not the one that's calling the shots and determining how things are to be conducted in the midst of this world. I am. I am Jehovah. So that the law reveals to us Jehovah as the sovereign God of heaven and earth. He's the one that directs everything. He's the one that carries out all of his will. These are the words of Jehovah. God doesn't come to us and say, here's something nice, here's something profitable that perhaps you could consider. No, God says, I am Jehovah, thou shalt. These are laws. These are demands from the almighty God. And they come with authority. Just think of how God presented the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. There was lightnings and thunders. The people trembled with fear, recognizing we stand before Jehovah. And we cannot despise God's will without dire consequences. And so it is throughout all of history. Unless man meets those requirements or finds peace and comfort through one who does it on his behalf, there's eternal wrath. The Almighty God reveals what it is that pleases him. And the law then sets forth God as the infinite, almighty, absolute, unchangeable God of heaven and earth. The one who rules over all things, who demands of all men, women, and children that they look to him and that they perform his good pleasure. That he alone is to be worshipped and adored. But secondly, the law is used by God to show the sinner the depths of his or her sin. By the law, Paul said, is the knowledge of my sin. The law is a mirror. We look into the law and we see a reflection of who and what we are over against God's will. And the law convinces a man, I'm not just a sinner, I'm sinful. That's what Jesus here is doing in Matthew 5. Jesus is teaching the people, you are not only sinners, you are sinful. And he's demonstrating that their sin goes beyond their outward actions and it rises from their motives and from their thoughts and from their desires. The Pharisees were real good at just keeping the tension on their outward actions. Just look at what we've done. Don't go beyond that. And Jesus says, no. Jehovah God is almighty God. He's the searcher of the hearts. He penetrates into the very innermost being of a man or a woman, a child. And he knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're desiring. And so this is the use of the law that we noted in Lord's Day 2. Revealing our misery. Sin is that which lies in the nature of man. And man despises God and despises God's will. And man walks contrary as a sinner who is sinful. The third then, the law convinces us of our need for a savior. The law, says the apostle, is the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. This was already plain in the Old Testament. When the high priest appeared in the Holy of Holies, what was he carrying? He always was carrying blood. Now why was he always carrying blood? Because that blood needed to be spilled on the mercy seat. And God was pointing out to Israel, you cannot keep my commandments. What is necessary is that someone is sacrificed in your behalf. You need a mediator. You need a Messiah in order to save you. 
I read of a story some time ago about a slave who was treated very poorly by his master. He found himself in a terrible lot. And he found himself persecuted, treated wrongly. And as a result, then he sought comfort. And someone else directed him to religion and to Christ and to the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. This man was brought then to a saving knowledge of Christ through his misery and through his struggles. When on his deathbed, he was thrilled. He knew a joy and a peace that he had never known. And he was ready to depart and to be with Christ, whom he confessed would be better to him than anything he had enjoyed during the whole of his life. While on his deathbed, that cruel master came to greet him. And this slave, with all kinds of emotion, grabbed his hand and kissed it and said, I am thankful for you. Thankful for what God did through you. Because that hand was the hand that directed me to my Savior. So is the sinner. The sinner who is drawn to see his sin is thankful. Thankful for the tool that God used, the law, to show me I can't save myself. I'm miserable. And to direct me then to the one who is my Savior, my Deliverer. The law, blessed be the law. Thankful for the law. Because what did it do? It drove me to my knees. It caused me to see that I was nothing and I could do nothing pleasing in God's eyes. And it drove me to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And thankfully, God is not a stern, cruel master like that wicked slave owner. But God in His grace gives us His law. And then He works in our hearts so that He leads us to see increasingly our value and worth in life in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But finally, the law then is also a rule of gratitude to God for the finished salvation that God has given us. It directs us to the way that we are to shine as lights in the midst of this world. Jesus comes here. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. How do we do that? How is it that our light shines before men? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That light is going to shine by our understanding God's will for us. Understanding what is it that God requires of me and desiring now to live in a manner that reflects not my will, his will. And so for that reason, the Heidelberg Catechism directs us to the law now under the section of thankfulness. The whole law is summarized in two great commandments. Love God and love the neighbor. As the second question and answer here of Lord's Day 34 states, into two tables, the first of which teaches us how we must behave toward God, the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. That's the whole of the law. What is God's will for me? Love God and love my neighbor as myself. These two embrace every duty and they embrace the manner in which we as Christians will shine in the midst of a world that is filled with sin and darkness. As we read the Bible, we hear different statements about how the law is important. Then we read other statements that talk about the law being 
no longer necessary. And we can become confused. So crucial it is then for us to understand. The Bible is talking about the law in different ways, in different contexts. And therefore, it's important that we carefully study the context. How is the Bible here speaking of the law? Is it speaking of the law as the basis of my salvation? Then, of course, I don't have anything to do with that perspective of the law. Is it talking about the law as the way I know my sin? Is it talking about the law as the way in which I show my gratitude? As we read the Bible, as we understand it in its context, we realize the rich value and place that God gives to the law. We also understand the way in which the law is used in so many different ways. Sometimes the law is being used to refer to the civil, the ceremonial laws. Sometimes it's being used to refer to the moral law. Sometimes it's being used simply to refer to God's will. And so as we study it, we desire to understand how am I to live in connection with God's commandments? How, as a regenerated child of God, am I to live in connection with the law? We're not under the dominion, we're not under the curse of the law as God's redeemed children. Christ has freed us from that bondage to the law. In that sense, to be under the law means that the outward precepts of the law govern us and that we are doomed by them because we cannot obey them, we cannot keep them. And therefore, those commandments would send us to hell. Then... There's other passages that talk about the fact that, oh, how love I thy law. It's a delight, as the psalmist speaks of. In that sense, we're talking now in a different way of the law. We're talking now about the law as that which is the way of gratitude, the way of thankfulness, that which enables me to know my God, his sovereignty in my life, and the way that he would have me to live. I'm not under the curse of the law. I've been freed from the bondage of the law as that which would drive me to hell. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled that law for me. He stood where I deserved to stand. He obeyed perfectly as I could never do. And now I desire to love him and to keep his commandments. The Bible speaks of Christ being the end of the law. And so we ask, what does that mean? Christ is the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. It doesn't mean that the law ended with Christ and so there's no more application of the law to those who are in Jesus Christ. Christ did not abolish the spiritual law. He abolished the law of ceremonies, the law of shadows. It's important, therefore, that we understand distinctions between law and law, that we understand the context in which the Bible is speaking, and that we carefully then Understand the place that God has ordained for the law in our lives as God's children. Now, there was in the Old Testament the law from the perspective of it being a body of shadows, the ceremonies, the civil law. And then there was also in the Old Testament the aspect of the law that was eternal. We understand that Christ fulfilled the shadows, He fulfilled the ceremonies. He fulfilled those aspects of the law that had to do with the civil life of Israel. So that those matters are not binding any longer to us. We don't have to leave our land set for every seventh year or every 49th year. 
The civil, the ceremonial laws were abolished in Christ. Not just fulfilled, abolished in Christ. Article 25 of the Belgic Confession reads, We believe that the ceremonies and figures of the law ceased at the coming of Christ, and that all the shadows are accomplished, so that the use of them must be abolished among Christians. The use of them abolished. We don't need to maintain or keep those Now, from those laws pertaining to the priests, the sacrifices, the feast days, the church, though it has been delivered completely from them, realizes at the same time there are spiritual principles that are taught in those laws. And the Belgic Confession is careful there. While it says the use of them is no longer binding, it does speak of the fact that we can learn from and we can grow in our understanding of the principles that lie behind them, which principles are enduring. Yet the truth, continuing with Belgic Confession, Article 25, and substance of them remain with us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have their completion. And so we understand the fact that those laws, to a degree, had to do with cleanliness, very practical as avoiding infections and other aspects, so that the truth, the substance of what lied behind them care for the land that God has entrusted to us are yet that which remain an important study that would be useful would be to continue to study those civil and ceremonial laws in order to determine what are the underlying spiritual principles that undergird them that are yet of relevance to us today we understand the distinction between that and the moral law And even in the way in which God gave the moral law, we understand the difference. God gave the moral law differently than he gave all of those ceremonies and all of those civil laws. Now, in the moral law, we also acknowledge there still is something Jewish. There's something earthly. God is talking about the seventh day of the week. Today, we make application to the first day of the week on the basis of Christ's resurrection. We understand that there still remains, even in the moral law, an earthly sense. But its essence is eternal. And Christ is the one who fulfilled it not only, but he now works in us so that we fulfill that law in Jesus Christ. He freed us from the obligation of the law insofar as the law testifies of the death of all those who do not keep God's commandments perfectly. He stood in our place. He kept them perfectly. He obeyed God's law, loving God, loving the neighbor flawlessly. With a heavy burden of sin weighing upon him, he walked that path of obedience. And Christ now lives in us by his spirit and enables us to hear and to heed the admonition with which Jesus closed, Matthew 5. Be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Live now as those who are in Christ. Walk as those who show forth his praise. Now we recognize I'm never going to be perfect until ultimately I get to heaven. I go forward in the spirit of Jesus Christ and by his power. The moral law did not end then with Christ. Although Christ is the end of the law, Insofar as the commands and the threats are involved, 
Christ did not abolish the law of the Ten Commandments from the perspective of their ethical, their spiritual application to our lives. The very nature of the law reveals that. And you children remember that. It was written by God's own finger on two tables of stone so that God displayed that way the fact that these commandments are enduring. These commandments have a relevance that is going to continue. That wasn't true of the other laws that God gave. Now we understand this too. The law in its current form is not going to be preserved to all eternity because of that earthly form that there is to it. The law, as we have it, makes reference to loving father and mother. It makes reference to not committing adultery. Those are not going to be matters, we believe, that will be of relevance in heaven as there is no giving of marriage, no husband, no wife relationships in heaven. The Ten Commandments, in that sense, are rooted in our life in this world. But the law, as to its eternal significance, love God and love the neighbor, is that which will endure to all eternity. That has been written in the hearts of God's children. And that love for God and that love for one another is enduring. So, beloved, today, we need God's law as God's people. We do not need that law to rule over us and to curse us, but we need that law to guide us, to warn us, to expose our sin, to drive us to our Savior. We need that law so that we can know what God's will is for us. We pray, not my will, thy will be done. What is God's will? God says, here is my will. Love me and love the neighbor as myself. And so we give the law then a place of honor. We give the law a place, an important place in our lives. And we heed its advice with regard to our walk in the midst of this world as Christians. The Ten Commandments are as binding on us who are in Christ in the New Testament as they were on the Israelites of old who are also found in Jesus Christ. They're not binding again as the ground of our salvation, as a condition unto salvation, as the way of salvation, but as the way of gratitude for that salvation that God has given. And so we continue to see the completeness then of the law in our lives. The law is perfect. That emphasis we find throughout the Psalms, the perfection and the completeness of the law is rooted in God because God is perfect. And God is complete, and this is his will that's revealed to us. God is revealed in all his majesty, in all his glory, in all of his holiness. He's revealed not only as the sovereign God of heaven and earth, but as the holy and the righteous one. And the introduction to that law revealed that in Exodus 19, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. So that all the people in the camp trembled. They realized the greatness of the glory of this God. He who gave it is not only Jehovah, the holy and the great God, but he's also our Redeemer, our Lord. And God reveals himself as our Redeemer in the law. I am the Lord thy God, not only, but we continue. That brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
That's the love that our Heavenly Father has for us. This law is given unto us from Jehovah, the I am that I am, who tenderly and lovingly has delivered us from the bondage of sin and brought us into the joy and wonder of that heavenly life that is ours in him. The way that the commandments were given is remarkable. Lightnings, thunder, God placing specific emphasis on the moral law. The people had to purify themselves for days before they could even get close to the mount. Again, as we stated, the law was written on both sides of the tables to indicate nothing could be added, nothing could be subtracted. One table, our relationship to God. The other table, our walk with fellow mankind. The outward form of the law bears the testimony that it is complete and perfect. Graven on two tables of stone and rock and written so that their final number is ten, the number of completeness. In another respect, the law is perfect in that when we study it, we see that no aspect of our personal lives is left out of it. That's remarkable. And we'll see that as we launch into the Ten Commandments in the next weeks. Every single area of my life and your life is touched on by those Ten Commandments. Nothing is exempted. And so as we study them in the light of God's Word, we see their impact in every part of our life. We see that there is no escaping the application of these commandments to any part of my walk or my conduct. I might think, well, in this area of my life, does God really have something to say to me here? Yes, he does. And it becomes evident through his commandments that God is interested in the whole of my life. And he calls me to walk in a manner that reflects submitting to him in every part of my walk and my conduct. Everything that concerns my relations to him. Everything that concerns my relations with one another. Everything is dealt with. The relation of a man with his wife, parent with children, children with a parent, master with servant. Every single aspect of our interaction in the midst of this world is addressed in God's commandments. But the law is also seen in this. There is no hope of salvation apart from the love of God. The love of God is central. And apart from the love of God, there's no hope for man. And so God comes and God says, love me. And we realize, what is the most important thing in my life? It's that I love God. If I don't love God, I will go to hell. But love for God is that which is most important. And that love of God alone is the hope of mankind. If you take God away, you take a love for God away, all that's left is corruption and death. And so that my life is about God. It's not about me. It's about God. And it's about loving God with everything that I have in me. It's about forsaking every selfish desire I have. Every ambition I have that rises from my own thoughts. It's about God. And we realize the chaos that is involved when that is not acknowledged. When God is removed from a home. When God is removed from a school. When God is removed from a society. Chaos ensues because the central aspect of God's will for me is love God no society no family no home can exist apart from loving God 
And the law reveals that gratitude and that way in which I show my walk with him. All of grace, all by a wonder by which he chose me and he united me to him by faith. And he now works in me so that the whole of my life is a battle against my own will. The whole of my life is a battle. I love God and I want to love God more. And I want to show that love of God in every area of my life so that I can give him all the glory that is due unto his name. Such is the pursuit of the child of God out of thankfulness to God for what God has done for him. The spiritual significance then, beloved, of that law is seen in the fact that it speaks deeper than outward actions. Now, for the most part, it's prohibitive. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Don't do this. And so we understand that. It tells us what not to do repeatedly. The prohibitive nature of the law is fine before the magistrate. But God requires more than that. There's another reason, though, for the negative nature of the law, and it's because we're prone to wander. We're prone to do those things. And so God says, don't do them. It's like a little child. A little child is prone to do things that are wrong, and so we need to do more than just tell them what they have to do. We also have to say, and don't do this, because it's in their inclination to do it. But if someone doesn't do the things that the law forbids, that's still not enough. And that's the main point of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here is addressing citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, how is it that citizens of the kingdom of heaven live? And at heart, citizens of God's kingdom love God and they love the neighbor. And Jesus says, here's how you're going to live that. God has taken you and he's brought you into his kingdom. He's made you to be citizens of that kingdom. And now, how are you to conduct yourself? How will you show evidence of that? Not by just avoiding certain things, but positively by doing certain things. And so why is it that we must study the law? Not because we don't know the law. I think it's important for us to understand that. God by a wonder of grace, writes his law upon the hearts of his children. We know the law. We know God's will for us. God has written that law upon our hearts. That's a wonder of God's grace. The wicked also know the law in an objective sense. They know there's a God. But God has performed a marvelous work of grace in working that law within us. And so, we don't study the law because we don't know it. God in His grace has written that law in our hearts. Our sins, tragically, are not due to ignorance, but rebellion against God and His commandments. And so why do we need to study the law? Because of the depravity that still clings to our natures. The law does not govern my heart like it ought. I'm a child of God, whom God has called out of darkness into light, but I mourn, I weep over the fact that His will and His commandments do not govern me as I would desire. I want to do what's right in His sight. That law is to govern the whole of my life so that I walk according to it in every area because I love God and because I'm thankful for the wonder of salvation. But I look at myself and I'm grieved. 
That's not the case. Now, beloved, this is why we mourn over our sin. This is why we long for deliverance from this body of sin. This is why we not only look to Christ, but this is why we pray for the wonder of deliverance. That God will give us to know the joy of heaven, the delight of that spiritual life where there will be no more battle, where the battle will be over. God works in us the knowledge that the root and essence of that law is to love God and to love the neighbor. And as members of his kingdom, we delight in that. We desire that. And yet, we see how weak, how sinful we are. And so we study the law so that I might know my sin more fully, that I might confess that sin, so that I might pray for the grace in every area of my life to submit to God and to show forth his grace, that I might be holy even as he is holy. But ultimately, it's driving us to live for the things of God's kingdom, as citizens of his kingdom for a heavenly kingdom. So that God uses the law to turn us away from the things of this earth, to cause us to see my citizenship is spiritual, it's heavenly, and I am to live now as one who pursues the things of heaven and the glory of God. I'm to live according to God's righteousness, God's holiness. And that's a theme through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. That the citizens of the kingdom of God live as those who shine as lights, as those who are righteous, those who are holy, those who, by their life and by their walk, reveal the wonder of God's work of grace in their hearts. They live in a manner that shows they're not their own. They belong to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And their union to Christ is what governs the whole of their walk and all of their life. Beloved, the child of God in Jesus Christ and by the power of his spirit alone is able to fulfill the law. In this sense, all men are called to walk in obedience. The command goes to all. All men hear the must. But what does God do in the hearts of his children? God causes that must to be a desire. And then God turns that desire into a can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I can't do it perfectly. I'm not going to be able to do it in a manner that's without sin. But God has worked in me a small beginning of that new obedience. And I don't plead on the basis that I'm not able. I don't throw up my hands in despair and say, I can't do it. Why would God even require it of me? But for the child of God, the command comes with the grace to obey. Now from an outward perspective, as that command comes to all men, none will escape God's judgment. God's sovereignty and God's power is displayed. And the standard of that judgment will be God's righteous law. From the heart, every man, woman, and child will be judged. Have you loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Those who walk in disobedience are cast into corruption. But in Christ, we are found. He who loved God perfectly, he who fulfilled the law on our behalf, and he who now strengthens us so that we hear God's commands. We delight in God's will. We who are redeemed, who know deliverance from the bondage of sin and death, delight in our God and we love him. And we walk with him. We talk with him. 
So what the emphasis is on our personal walk with God and our personal walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. How am I walking with God? Am I loving Him? Am I delighting in Him? Am I repenting? Am I turning away from my sin? How am I walking with my Lord? Am I confessing that I need Him? I need Him in every area of my life. Apart from Him, I cannot live. His atoning work on my behalf is my only hope and my comfort. And am I walking then in a manner that reflects my love and my delight for what He has done for me? God says, I love you. And God says, now keep my commandments. Show your love for me by pursuing my will, by obeying me. That's the way of joy. And beloved, when we place ourselves in light of the law, the result will be that we grow in our knowledge of God. Humbled we are by His greatness, His righteousness, His holiness. We grow in our knowledge of how precious Christ is to us. What He's done for us, we rejoice in and we marvel in the wonder of His love. And we pray for deliverance. We live not for the things here below. We're living for heaven and for the glory that awaits. And we long for that day when there will be no more battle. And we we no longer need to pray, Thy will be done, because God will give us the grace to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to all eternity. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we love Thee. We delight in the wonder of Thy grace in our hearts and in our lives. Strengthen us that we might look to Thee, that we might humbly bow before Thy sovereign will and that we might know the joy and the victory of ours in Christ. Keep us, we pray, from sin. Deliver us from temptation and strengthen us, Thy will to do. Amen.